the rest of us can open up our Bibles to um, 2 Samuel chapter 4. Short chapter. See what the Lord's going to do as we consider 2 Samuel chapter 4. I just want to give everybody a second there. Some parents are coming back. Yeah, as soon as the song started, I'm like, ah, too late now. Second Samuel chapter 4, Bible's in the back. Let me remind everybody, our website, kingschapel.net, um, we are uh, posting not only audio, but video if you'd like every week. The audio goes up first, video comes second. Um, actually, Pastor Ricky um, is working on a, a new website, just kind of give you a heads up. It'll be unbelievably better than the one already up there, which he did, which is great. Um, so that's coming shortly, maybe in a month or two, we'll see. So we are in Second Samuel chapter 4, and we are continuing what's called the Civil War. That's our sermon title, Civil War Part 3. I figured it was a good one for part one and two. Why not go with the third part, right? If you've been tracking with us, Second Samuel, or the second book of Samuel, opens up with David mourning the death of Saul, the first king of Israel. David has been, unbelievably, the subject of his, his hostility and his anger, his murderous threats for some time. But when David hears, and this is going to be important, as you'll see in the text, when David hears that King Saul has died, he's broken about it even though he's trying to kill him, and he mourns about it. Not only because he's God's anointed, but because of what the nation is going through with the king dead, and his good friend, his covenant friend, Jonathan, is also dead. They died at the hands of the Philistines. All of this, by the way, came by the sovereign hand of God. Nothing took God by surprise. In chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, after Saul's death, David is anointed king of Judah. Now, I just want to do this for two minutes or so, just because there's, there's some, I don't want anyone to be confused about the characters up to this point and who they're fighting for, because we're going to see some new characters today, and I want to make sure everyone's clear. So I just want to say, at this point, we get to 2 Samuel chapter 2 in the redemptive history of, of Israel. Remember, Israel has 12 tribes. Twelve tribes of Israel. Eleven of the tribes, which we'll call Israel, of to the north, is ruled by a king who was once Saul. Now is Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is ruling the eleven tribes of Israel. Ishbosheth is the son of King Saul, who's dead. His number one guy, the number one guy to the northern part of Israel, Ishbosheth is the king. His number one guy is. The commander of the army, and his name is Abner, Abner and Ishbosheth. Their home is in a place called Mahanaim. It's east, northeast of the Jordan. Reigning and ruling, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, king, Abner, right man, man, commander. To the south, the one other tribe is Judah, single tribe. The king of Judah is David. His number one man is Joab. Joab and David, Abner and Mishbosheth are the people that we're talking about. Got it so far, I hope. Let me get a little more complicated. Joab, who's the number one guy for King David, has two brothers. 
Their name is Abishah and Asahel. They're actually David's nephews. So they're with David. Joab's the right-hand man. He's got two brothers, all nephews of David. Okay? So far, what we've seen is Abner, the commander of the northern tribes of Israel, all 11 of them, Abner, went into Judah and instigated a fight and said, let's have a competition. And Abner, representing the 11 tribes with his men, went down to Judah where David is and Joab is and said, let's have a competition. You get 12, I'll get 12, and let's see what happens. And they wind up killing each other, 24 dead men. 11 tribes against the one tribe, 24, 12 on each side, all dead. If you remember, Asahel, after these men died, Asahel is the nephew of David, Joab's brother, chased after Abner, who's serving the king of the north. Following me? And Abner said, leave me alone. Three times, twice. He didn't want to hear it. And Asahel was killed. A spear went through his stomach. Abner stopped, they believe, and, 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 and killed Asahel, okay? Joab was not happy because that's his brother. And Joab and his other brother are angry. Joab is looking for an opportunity to take out Abner for what he did. Last week, we saw he got that opportunity. Remember, Abner, the commander of Israel under the 11 tribes, last week flipped. He made a power move. He left his king Ishbosheth to the north and went to Judah to make a deal with David. David's only king of one tribe. And he made this power move. And he wanted to make an agreement. Abner's like, listen, I'm turning my back on Ishbosheth and the kingdom. I know I'm commander. I'm coming to you, David. Let's, let's, let's solidify the kingdom. David says, okay. Tells Abner, okay. And sends Abner off to go back up for the 11 tribes to get to solidify the kingdom. And he don't get very far. Because Joab, the second in charge of King David's kingdom, says, man, you let him go. I want to kill that guy. And then secretly, without David knowing, he sends messengers and says, bring Abner back. Abner's turned around. And you know what happens there. He's meeting at the gate. Abner faces Joab. And Joab kills him. Without permission, without knowledge of David. So Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. His two brothers are dead. And now Abner, the commander of the northern tribe of Ishbosheth, is dead. And this civil war is going to continue today. There's going to be more deaths. But David is going to be king. And you need to see that. David, in all this mess and all this brokenness and all this killing and murder and injustice, David was promised the kingdom. It's just coming to him in a mess. Three real simple things. We're going to look at some more characters. That's why I want to lay it out to you. We're going to look at the characters, three more. And then the crime, two more. And then the crime, and then, of course, the consequence of that crime. So, let's go with the characters. Now, hear the word of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, northern kingdom, 11 tribes, heard that his second-in-command, Abner, was dead at Hebron. Remember, he got killed by Joab. His courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was be 
Baana, is how you say it, and the name of the other, Rechab, Rechab, sons of Rimmon, sons of Benjamin, from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerashites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. So what I want you to see, what the narrative I think wants us to see, wants to point out something very important going on. What's going on in the kingdom at the time and what's going on with the king. So, so the king of Israel, Ishbosheth, remember he accepted the offer from Abner to be king over Israel, even though he knew he wasn't supposed to be. David was going to be king. And now his right-hand man is dead. And it says now he is without courage. Ishbosheth knew that Abner was headed down to south to talk to David and knew that his right-hand man had flipped and was going with another kingdom. I don't know what he was waiting for, but he knew there was changes that were going to happen. When, when, when Abner came back, or if he came back, he was going to tell Ishbosheth, you're done. You're no longer the king. So I'm sure he was concerned, if not deeply troubled, that his second man had defected his kingdom. And it says that, it, look at it says, it says, without courage, or his courage failed. It literally means his hands became slack. He lost grip. He lost the strength. He lost the courage at that moment. It was all over to act as king. The power and the strength that Ishbosheth had received was man's power. Was given to him by man, not by God. Abner is the one that told him, you should be king over Israel. But now he's weak. Now he can't contain his strength or his courage to remain as king. He lost courage. It reminds me of a very famous quote by Hudson Taylor, a missionary, global partner to China, who said this, God's work done in God's way never lacks God's supply. This is the opposite. Ishbosheth was doing what he and Abner wanted to do, but not what the Lord wanted them to do. And sometimes, I think, for me anyway, we can shrink back or give up a just plain old tire out sometimes when we are trying to accomplish things in our own strength, in our own will, in our own courage, rather than resting on the strength and the courage of God. Now, I'm not saying that if you're serving the Lord faithfully, you won't be tired. I wish I could say that. In fact, serving the Lord can be very tiresome. What I'm saying is this. One of the ways you will know whether you are you being used of God by God's strength or your strength is if when you fall down in exhaustion, you either have a smile on your face or a frown. Right? Sensing the pleasure of God for his glory is tiresome. But it's a joy. And if you're in your own strength, you're in your own, your own courage, you're doing your own thing, you're going to get bitter. You're going to become angry after a while. You're going to become frustrated. And you're going to give up. And let me tell you what happens to those around you when you were in your own strength. Look what it says. And all Israel was dismayed. The, the word dismayed means horrified. They're thinking, he's got no courage. What's going to happen to us? The, uh, the one that now has no strength, no courage, we... Gave our allegiance to you. We, have, we, we made you king over Israel, even though we knew David was supposed to be, and all 11 tribes really supported Ishbosheth, and now their king has got no strength. They're like, what's going to happen to us? 
He's afraid. He's weak. And if that's not enough, the, the narrator wants us to introduce us to two more people. Bainan and Rechab, sons of Remen. Where are they from? Benjamin. What does that mean? It means that they are from the same place that Saul is Pasheth, the same tribe, the same people. One Bible teacher writes this. He says, these are outlaw brothers. They were opportunists. They felt no loyalty to anyone but themselves. They set their sails to the prevailing wind for their own good. End quote. You see, Ishbosheth has these two bandits. He's a sitting duck. He, he cannot really rule his own house because Abner provided the muscle. He provided the soldier. Now he's, he's a weak king. He's ruling over a weak nation. He's got rebels as comrades. And that's what the narrator wants to see. The narrator wants to see that he's weak. He, he, the nation is horrified. And now he has rebels working for him. Verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, who had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came. This is Jonathan's son from Jezreel. And his nurse, what happened was his nurse took him and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name is Methbesosheth. Looking for names there. There's one there. Why is the narrator sticking that in there? We don't read it for him until later on. Because the narrator wants us to see the bleak, dark place Israel's at. Let's just add this as well. Not only, is, not only is the king failing, not only is the king weak, not only is the nation horrified, not only has these two bandits that are, we're going to see what happens to them, but the only one left in the house of Saul is crippled. In other words, it's over. It's over. There's nothing left in Saul's kingdom. Everyone's dead or everyone has no courage or he is, as it says, totally dependent on others. He lacks the ability. One lacks the strength. One lacks the ability. Saul's house is done. David is destined to be king over all Israel and everyone knows it, but no one knows how to turn this situation around. And that's what the, we know the story. Think of it then. For them, they don't know the whole story. And, and let me tell you where God many times shines the brightest. Where his glory, his incalculable worth, is revealed the clearest. It's when men are at the end of their own strength. Men and women are at the end of their rope. And they see no way out. And then God has a way of showing up. God has a way to show up and do what only God can do. You see, it's easy to say God is good in the good. But God gets glory when say God is enough in the bad. That's what the narrator wants us to see. He gets glory, we get joy. The kingdom is going to be handed over to David. All the kingdom, all the 12 tribes we will see will be David's. But right now, it sure looks helpless. Helpless and hopeless, but God is not done. His word, his promises will be accomplished. God is the God of all hope. I read a story this week about a teacher a long time ago visited a, a children, uh, went to visit children. That was part of her volunteer work in a large city hospital. And she received a phone call from the hospital requesting to see a particular child. She took the boy's name, the room number. She was told by the teacher on the other end of the line, that we're studying nouns and adverbs in the class, young boy. 
I'd be grateful, they said to her, if you could help him with his homework so he doesn't fall behind, like, you know, behind the other people in the school. She writes, it wasn't until the visiting teacher got outside the boy's room that she realized it was located in the hospital's burn unit. No one had prepared her to find a young boy horribly burned and in great pain. She felt that she couldn't just turn and walk out, so she awkwardly stammered, I'm the hospital teacher, and your teacher sent me to help you with nouns and verbs. The next morning, a nurse on the burn unit asked her, what did you do to that boy? Before she could finish an apology, the nurse interrupted and said, you don't understand, we've been worried about him. But ever since you were here yesterday, his whole attitude changed. He's fighting back. He's responding. It's though he's decided to live. The boy later explained that he had completely given up hope until he saw the teacher walk in. It all changed, he said, when he, when he came to a simple realization with joyful tears he expressed. They wouldn't send the teacher to work on nouns and adverb for a dying boy, would they? Do you see? The hope is not in the circumstances. Hope is in the promise of the future. If we look at the immediate circumstance, we'll remain stuck. But when we look to God, the God of all hope, there's hope. God was not done with Noah when he built his little giant ark and stepped in it. God was not done with Sarah when she found out that she was barren. God was not done with Joseph when Joseph was wrongly placed in a prison. God was not done with Moses when he was running from Pharaoh. God was not done with Israelites when they, when they went up against the Red Sea. Or with Jericho, thinking that how can we conquer the land? God was not done with Ruth, although she was a widow. God was not done with David, who was mocked in the face of a giant. God was not done with Job, even though Job's family was taken from him. God was not done with Daniel, even though Daniel was fighting a government. God was not done with Jonah as he lay in the fish, in the belly of the fish and cried out. God was not done with Paul. When he gave him the thorn in the flesh. God is not done with Jesus. When he was brutally crucified. Hung on a cross to die. And then buried. In a tomb. God is not done. Hope is undone. Hope is not undone. Because God is not done. Hope is not undone. Because God is not done. We find these characters. Look what they do. Look at the crime. Verse 5. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, Rechab, Benine, set out the heat of the day. They came to the house of Ishbosheth, it's the king, taking his noonday rest. Don't you wish you had noonday rest? They came into the midst of the house as if to get some wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab, Benahim. His brother escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. Those are the leaders you want in your band of uh, uh, kingdom, right? Those are the kind of guys you want around you. They're very faithful. Don't be surprised. Verse 6 and verse 7, many times in Hebrew narratives, you have the facts in one and you have the facts again in the second verse. And, just, and then they add something to the verse that's normal. It's the way Hebrews write. Let's get a double description expanding. So what you find is these guys were, were, were looking to get some wheat, looking in the cupboards, trying to find the stuff, saw nobody looking, slept in the, in the room, unprovoked, and they stab and kill the king. And Ishbosheth now dies like Abner died. 
stabbed in the stomach. Seems to be a regular occurrence now. I don't know. But it's not enough. Look what it says. Verse 7, it says they cut off his head. They're going to show it to David and think this is, this is what we need to do. This is what David would want. And this gruesome detail is telling us not only because his father died that way, especially his father. Remember, King Saul died and had his head cut off, 1 Samuel chapter 31. They stripped him of his armor. They cut off his head. They, they, were, they, were, they, they nailed him and impaled him to a wall, if you remember. But the second thing I think this premeditated murder tells us is that the pathway now to the kingdom, the king is dead, second man Abner's dead, these two guys who took some authority in the kingdom are dead, there's no one left. It's now wide open for David. This is not the way David wanted to be king. The road to murder, the road to injustice, the road to death, a lot of people dying in these three chapters. Verse 7. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night, brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. They said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day, and Saul and on his offspring. These men, they slip out. Tough guys don't want to be around. They escape. They take the head. It's kind of like proof, right? Before cell phones, you think you would just take a picture. You can't. You're bringing it with you. They're looking for some reward, or maybe they're just looking to get ahead. I got to do something. This is a sad scene, right? (laughs) David clearly was not a stranger to it. He had cut off the head of, of Goliath as a trophy. But what they didn't understand... And we need to see this. They didn't understand that David had an affection and loyalty to God, to Israel, and to the respected king. They didn't realize that to the house of Saul. David was Saul's enemy, but Saul was not David's enemy. And, the, and these men, to avoid detection, trying to slip out of the way and, and thought they were doing what is right. And notice what they do. They speak to David in verse 7. Is it verse 7? Yeah. My Lord, the king. They're actually calling him the king. We're seeing this over and over again. Their allegiance was to themselves. They didn't care about the kingdom. They thought that they would be able, they were able to get a place and a position in that kingdom. Ishbosheth is our guy. We're sleeping. Let's kill him. I mean, you people don't do that because they're really concerned about the kingdom. They took an innocent man's life. They were looking out for themselves, but they miscalculated. They miscalculated David's love for God. They miscalculated David's submission to God and his refusal to touch the Lord's anointed. We've seen this over and over again. They did not know David's heart. They did not know David's character. They went and did exactly what David would not have done. And that's for something us, for us today to think about, right? If you really want to know the heart of God, if you really want to know the character of God, you have to spend time with God. You have to spend time with God. You have to, be, you have to spend time communicating to God in prayer and allowing him to communicate to you through his word. To know the character of God, to know the the heart of God, you have to spend time in God's word, in prayer, 
Knowing the heart takes time. Knowing the heart of God takes humility. Knowing the heart of God, unfortunately for us sinful people, takes confession and repentance seriously and regularly to know the heart of God. These two lone rangers think that God has given them the victory as a means of vengeance. Look what we did for you. They were very, very wrong. This was not the way to execute justice. This was not the way to execute justice and to eliminate David's rival and solidify the kingdom. Ralph Davis in his commentary writes this, they came with blood on their hands but theology on their lips, expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. Murder always seems more pleasant when wrapped in religious considerations, end quote. The Lord vengeance your, you, David. And you can see like this giant smile and smirk on their face. They really think they've done something really wonderful as they give this head to David. No remorse, no sadness, no repentance, looking for a reward. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of this brokenness, this murder, this injustice, we know, family of God, we know for sure that God uses the wicked acts of men to advance his own purposes and glory. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. The cross is the apex of that reality. By the sinful hands of men, by the foreknowledge of God, Christ was crucified. Well, how could it be both? It is. It is. And these foolish men, (laughs) in the height of foolishness, these perpetrators present this wickedness to David and to God and call it a gift from God. We have to be careful we're not masquerading a sinful lifestyle, living in sin, and masquerade it around religious jargon. May the Lord avenge my Lord the King. We've seen Saul do that. We've seen Saul when he was confronted with his disobedience about the Amalekites. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I know I didn't do exactly what God wanted me to do, but we're here to sacrifice to the Lord. No, to obey is better than sacrifice Saul, right? And what happens is we have to be careful, especially us guys and girls who love theology. I love theology. We have to be very, very careful not masking our knowledge of theology, masking it so that we don't love, care, serve others it's it's quick to bring up a theological point it's much harder to serve and love one another right we got to be careful to explain things away theologically when what we're really doing is simply using god using an argument manipulating him for our convenience to keep from submitting to him his grace his mercy being humble okay i need to be careful try being married to a preacher it ain't easy for Mary. You can pray for her. Because I got an argument. And I got a theological argument. I'm called to serve and love first, right? I mean, I love theology. I'm not saying, please don't hear me, and say that we should not study theology. I'm simply saying we have to be careful that it's not shrouded in love. That's what I'm saying. You got it? Everybody? Okay, good. Let's move on. Consequences. David answered Rechab and Benahem, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Ber. I keep saying these words over and over. Don't get any easier, by the way, no matter how many times you say it. Berestite, 
As the Lord lives and redeemed my life out of every adversary, adversity, when one told me, now this is David talking to these guys, the Lord lives, he's redeemed me. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, just like you guys, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. And you can see their smiles turn to frowns right there. Oh, that was the reward I gave them for their news. Just so you know. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his own bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Everything went sour from there. David's like, listen, there was an incident you may not know back in chapter one when somebody took the crown and armlet of Saul and brought it to me. He lied to me and said that he helped kill the king. And he brought me this stuff as a reward. And David said, I executed him. And David's saying, <laughs> David's like, if that story didn't go very well before, it's certainly nothing's changed. It ain't going well for you today. Right? What do you think is going to happen to you? Verse 12. And David commanded his young men. They killed him cut off his head and his feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. There you have it. David's not playing. David's like, listen, as the Lord lives, the Lord has redeemed my life. Out of every, every adversary, adversity, Saul's like, listen, God, save me from the hand of Saul. God, save and redeem me from the lions and the bears we saw in 1 Samuel. God, save me from my enemies. Because God trusted in God. David trusted the Lord. He did not, listen, David, think about this just for a minute. When we, next week we're going to talk about his solidifying the kingdom. David had so many opportunities to solidify the kingdom on his own. David had so many opportunities to say, God promised this. The ends justify the means. I, I'm going to do whatever it takes, and I see an opportunity, I'm taking it. But David would not do that. David waited on the Lord. David would not sin against the Lord. But knew what the promise of God was. Knew what God had promised. But waited on God to deliver that promise. Rather than step out and sin against God. He's a righteous king. Look what it says about Ishbosheth, verse 11. It says he's a righteous man. The word righteous can be translated in more than one way. I think here it should be translated, he's an innocent man. In other words, he's not guilty for what his father did. He is not, he didn't deserve anything that, does, that was so brutal. In other words, he did not deserve to be killed while he's sleeping in his bed at home. That was undeserved. That murder was, was provoked by unrighteous men. And then they impale him, which shows, according to Deuteronomy, that those men are under a divine curse. That's what that's about. David had his hands and feet and body. At, at, and you see, look at, look at the text. David is showing respect for Ishbosheth, his murdered brother-in-law, and buries him in Hebron. And yet takes those other men because of the divine curse. You see the treatment so, so stark. So, so stark. Like Judas, and like other scripture, God is sovereign. Even in the midst of this, God is accomplishing his purposes despite the evil acts of men. 
family, we should not fear that the wickedness of men, the brokenness of this world, will ever hinder God's kingdom. Ever. Oh, Paul writes, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. What you're witnessing is a king, King David, entering into his kingdom in a righteous way. He's the kind of king that punishes evil, stands on truth, stands on righteousness, at least for the moment. Because God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. Romans 16, excuse me, Proverbs 16, is an abomination to kings to do evil. For the throne is established by righteousness, and righteous lips are the delight of a king. And he loves him who speaks what is right. Proverbs 25, take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Isaiah 32, behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. So the question this morning, what kind of kingdom will David bring in? What kind of kingdom will come together, we'll see next week, where David will rule over evil kingdom or righteous kingdom? David will bring forth the kingdom in righteousness. These two young men that committed murder of a king while sleeping in his bed got exactly what the law prescribed. Nothing more, nothing less. We live in a culture where we don't want to speak about justice. We're not very pro-justice in our culture. Yet God's kingdom is. God is the God who is just, who rules justly, honorably, and nobly, and and faithfully, and truthfully. For the Lord is righteous, Psalm tells us. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Deuteronomy, he is perfect. His ways are just. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Justice means we do what is right in all circumstances. It is an expression of God's holiness. We were created in the Imago Dei, in the images likeness of God. We were created to be just, to, to deal with others fairly and righteously. It doesn't take someone very long to know that there is no true righteousness in this world. David himself is bringing in the kingdom, but David will sin greatly. David will sin greatly, for no one lives up to the perfect righteousness that God requires. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. There is brokenness, there is sin, there is evil, there is oppression, there is injustice and war and crimes. The Bible is clear that all this took place, the social, the spiritual, the physical, spiraling into darkness because of sin. Because our first parents, too, were made righteous, and they sinned, and everyone since them have sinned and fall short of the glory. In fact, 1 John 1 says that if you say, no, 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 I'm not a sinner, you're calling God a liar. You're calling God a liar. Because when God tells us that we are sinners, we're quick to say, no, 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 I'm not, they are. He is, she is, look at that one, look at this one. Yet Romans says there is no one righteous, not in the sense of sinless perfection. If we really believe, if we really believe, you really believe, if I really believe that we are sinners, who sinned against God, we would not have a low view of justice. We'd have a high view of justice. We'd recognize that a holy God has the right to be just. That a holy God has the right to punish sin. And if we have a high view of justice, guess what happens? We also have a high view of the gospel. 
of the good news of what Jesus has done for us. When he took our sin, when he paid the penalty for sin, when he absorbed the wrath we deserve, when he died in our place. High view of justice, high view of gospel. You see that? David is bringing in the kingdom that is built on the foundation of righteousness and justice. David will forget. For, for power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, as they say. And within a few chapters, David's going to act more like a gangster than a king. David's concern is for a kingdom, though, here, that's built on righteousness. You know, Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We love this verse. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not just forgiveness, not just justification. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know when Martin Luther heard that? He hated God even more. What are you asking from me, God? What are you telling me, God? What are you, I can't live righteously. It wasn't until he read this and realized it's a righteousness that's received by faith alone, through Christ alone. He who, Bible says, he was made sin for us who knew no sin so that we can be reckoned, we can become the righteousness of God in Christ I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's about righteousness and it's not mine. It's his. It's about Christ's righteousness. It's about Christ's rightness, integrity. He's the one that makes us right with God. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. Each and every one of us cannot live righteously. Jesus lived righteously. And by faith alone, in him alone, through the death on the cross, he imputes and reckons to us his righteousness, not our own. David is introducing and ushering into a kingdom But David can't save. David's pointing to a much greater king, and his name is Jesus. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus is the righteous one. Only the just one. He's the only perfect one. And right here in the the midst of this murder mystery, into this middle of this this massive killings and bloodshed, God in his indescribable providence is working together this universe for his glory and his purposes. William Cowper. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. It's a sad story. It's a broken story. But it's one of those main truths, pillars, that leads eventually to Christ. Who is the righteous king. Who is the only just king. Who will someday return And bring justice to this world. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us, if we understood how wicked and broken we really are. All of us would recognize how beautiful and glorious the gospel is. 
That's what communion is all about. Communion all is about is that we admit and confess that we are sinners. That we, in looking at the perfect standard and righteousness of God, fall short from that. Yeah, the person next to you, yeah, I'm better than you. Okay. But not righteous in God's eyes. All have sinned and fall short. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to live the perfect life that you could not live. And then died an atoning death. He's a substitute. He died in your place. He bore the penalty of sin. He took the wrath you deserve in your place. And then rose again from the dead. And that's what the communion table is about. The bread is about his body that was broken. The cup is about his blood that was shed for you. And here at this church, what we like to do is the band will play in a moment. We're going to be confessing and repenting our sins quietly. And then celebrating the Lord's forgiveness. We want to celebrate. We don't want to stay in brokenness. We don't want to stay in confession. We don't want to stay in repentance. We want to celebrate all that Christ is. All that Christ has done for us. If you've never trusted Christ and you're not his, just sing along with the band. If you belong to Jesus, you may come. Maybe today's the first day you say, you know what? I am a sinner. I have violated the law of God. I'm not perfect. I need a Savior. Jesus saved me from my sin. And come on up and celebrate. The band's going to play. Take your time. We're going to take the bread. We're going to take the cup. This is for you. And when you're ready, when you're ready, the band's going to play when you're ready. Some people like to come up, get communion, sit down and wait. Some people come up afterwards, confess, repent, celebrate. Okay? Maybe it's the first time. So what we're going to do, the band's going to come on up. And what we're going to do, everybody could just stay seated for a moment. Band, come on up. We're going to come down. It's the first time we've had it one service. Please, two rows, come down the middle aisle. Two rows, and then we'll go out this way. So come down here, gather your communion, and go back around, okay? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the men and women of Scripture who have lived faithfully, who have responded in faith, who have uh, responded in obedience. We thank you for those examples that we have in Scripture. But Father, the reality is the Scriptures was meant to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. To show us, Lord, that none of us are perfect. No one has the righteousness necessary to enter into your presence. All of us have sinned and have blood on our hands. We've all sinned. We've all violated the commands, your commands from us. And Father, you did not leave us as sinners. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we acknowledge that Christ's death is for us. We acknowledge that we need a Savior And we acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior. He died for sin. The tomb is empty. He is glorified. And someday he will return again. So, Father, as we confess our sins as a people, as we repent and turn from our sins, help us to celebrate the Lord's, you, O Lord, goodness and mercy to us. Help us, Father, to take of this bread, to drink of this cup, and remembering All that Jesus has done. May we have a high view of justice and our sin, but even a higher view of your grace in the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.